everyone and welcome to the second part of this special episode, the menopause one of the Women Talking About Learning podcast. I'm Andrew Jacobs. For this episode, we put a shout out for guests and were inundated with loads of women wanting to talk about this overlooked subject, which was quite frankly amazing. We decided to split the episode into two parts. This part, part two, was for expert guests who have a greater understanding and knowledge on the subject of the menopause and we had five incredible guests. Our first guest is Tanya McCowman. Tanya is a director at Lennox Learning and Development and a DI consultant. She's focused on helping SMEs create a culture of inclusion through strategic learning and development. Our second guest is Maria Manda. Maria is the founder of Manda Wellbeing, providing wellbeing consultancies to SMEs and large corporate companies across the UK. Our next guest is Nicola Texera. Nicola is an HR professional who's worked in L&D initially and then generalist HR. She now specialises in recruitment and more recently qualified as a registered nutritional therapist. We also have Liz Needham. Liz's career focus has been on people and organisational development since 2007. She's passionate about facilitating practical, content-specific dialogue and learning that delivers change. Our final guest is Lisa Wright. Lisa is the founder of Menopause the Right Way. After a career spent working within the data industry, Lisa decided to change focus and pursue a business opportunity based upon her lifelong interest in sport and nutrition. This is an impressive conversation, which we recorded at the beginning of September 2023. This is Women Talking About Learning. This is Tanya, Maria, Nicola, Liz and Lisa talking about menopause. Hi everyone, my name is Tanya McCalman and I'm really excited to be here today speaking to Nicola, Liz, Lisa and Maria um, on the topic of menopause and um, I'd just like to start the conversation really with with all of us um, and just start by asking what are some of the challenges that we see or notice in the workplace um, when we're thinking about the menopause? Shall I I kick off in terms of what what I sort of see, Tanya. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah. Um, I think for me, what I typically see in the workplace is, um, you know, a significant interest from the women themselves who may be perimenopausal and menopausal at that particular point, but perhaps less of a concern, less of an interest for, say, younger women, um, for say maybe men in the in the workforce, unless they've got partners who are who are struggling with it, and also a sort of um, a level, perhaps a certain level of discomfort, perhaps with managers and senior leaders, because this is a new area that they're having to embrace and bring into the workplace, and that, and that's sort of certainly what what I see in in the course of, of you know the work that I do. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? I think, you know, you point towards um, how this is a conversation that's starting to emerge among younger generations as well um, is a positive sign because there's obviously more awareness, but I still think there's there's work for us to do. And definitely around um, managers and senior leaders as well, being aware about what, what provisions they need to think about um, in the workplace. How about for others then? Yeah, I'd like to add in. So hi, everyone. I'm Maria. So I'm a, a wellbeing consultant. So I go into the workplace to support businesses to make sure that they've got the right framework in place. So I find that a lot of organisations um, don't even have a menopause policy in place. So first of all, it's making sure they have a menopause policy and then they have the structure around that, making sure that their managers are trained, which um, Lisa's just said um, as, as well, mm-hmm. and making sure that they know how to make reasonable adjustments and how they can support employees with their performance at work. It's also, you know, breaking down that the stigma and the taboo and getting that conversation um, around menopause and really educating employees, not only for people who are going through the menopause, but also for the younger generations and also supporting men as well, you know, whose, um, you know, partners might be uh, going through, you know, through the menopause. So it's, it's creating that awareness and getting those conversations going. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for sharing. Um, definitely agree with you on the policy um, implementation there and making sure that that's in place. But also, you know, I think it's really pertinent to mention how this affects men mm-hmm. and other family members as well, um, both in the workplace and outside. So, yeah. 
I think for um, workplaces as well, it's knowing what support is out there. So mm-hmm. the, the government have now got a task force in place to uh, raise awareness um, and support workforces with the menopause. We've also got um, the Wellbeing of Women charity that we're the that organisations can join to put um, a pledge into place on how they're going to support people in the workplace going through menopause um, and, and how they can educate them as well. And then the um, the British Standards Institute has also brought out um, a new standard as well to help with managing menopause in the workplace. So that's the BS 30416. So it's just creating that awareness and for organisations to know what's out there to support their employees. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks, Nicola. Um, sorry, thanks, Maria. And um, Nicola, how about for you? I was going to say, the place I'm currently working, um, we have quite a young work population. So this is not really on their radar. And while we recognise that it's something we need to put a policy in place for, um, it's not a priority for us right now, but definitely on our radar to do to discuss and to implement a policy. What's nice is within my HR team, we've got there's 10 of us, one male and nine females. I would say five of us are in perimenopause or menopause. So we discuss it quite openly on our team chats. And that's nice. It's comforting to know that you've got a circle of trust where you can share how you're feeling and how that might impact your day and that you've got support out there to help each other. So we have quite open conversations about it. And that's nice. And that all has come from the work for from Davina McCall, from um, other uh Dr. Nigat and other clinicians who are actually on social media talking about menopause. So it's become more common and more comfortable for people to talk about this topic. Yeah, absolutely. I agree, Nicola. I think also as well, I, I knew from my own personal experience when I was going through um, perimenopause in my early 40s, we weren't having those conversations. So I didn't understand what was happening. So I had changes to my monthly cycle, um, interruptions with my sleep as well. So it's really important that we are educating people and particularly the younger generations so that they understand you know, what, what's happening to them. And what's happening to others around them so that they can be yes. more supportive and more empathetic. Yes, and absolutely. I'm like you, so I, I suffered symptoms, but I didn't go the normal route. I had other issues that I went to see a nutritional therapist about. And then through that, I've realised there are other there are other options. So it's quite interesting to see the conversation around HRT and very NHS focused and where you can get help from your, your GP. But there are alternatives, which I'd explored for various reasons. So it's quite nice to know that there are other options apart from HRT. Yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. What, what are you hearing, Liz? Um, I guess, I guess, from my perspective, um, so I do a lot of work in leadership development, in coaching, working with teams to help them to, to perform at their best, and that's obviously very closely aligned with culture, organisational culture. So you know, you, you've all t- touched on many things that I'm seeing. I think I think the main concern for me at the moment in this topic area is that it seems to be largely so you know every organization is different but larger being looked at fairly tactically and sometimes in a bit of a piecemeal way so we might have a well-being offer we might be doing some work around uh you know supporting managers and leaders with how they uh, develop their confidence and build their skills and uh, deal with the many challenges that are out there at the moment we might have an, a talent management approach you know we've got a performance management approach all of these different things but what we're not really doing is joining the dots around around menopause and the big issue for me is that um, you know we have a lot of mid and senior female leaders out there who you know have all of these things available but actually can't access a lot of them for various reasons uh, don't really know where to start and if we're not really dealing with this in a systemic way and helping people to understand themselves understand their symptoms to manage some of their symptoms you know there's so many things that, that we can do then all of the other things that we're making accessible around learning and development around growth around career opportunities uh, or thinking about roles it's it's all diminished if I'm not feeling at my best and I'm not quite sure what it is that's going on and, and what's going to help me or I'm, I'm kind of trying things I'm grabbing at things rather than 
being able to really look at that. So I think we we tend to be quite siloed. And I think if we join the dots a little bit more, uh, we would be able to help uh, organisations. And, and uh, as I say, for me, really that focus on female leaders is a missing part of the conversation that we have around menopause. Because awareness raising is brilliant. You know, having those wider conversations is definitely part of it. Having policy, having training, but specifically, how do we help those individuals perform really well during what can be a 20-year period of their career? You know, probably when there's lots going on for their families and, and other areas of their life as well. So it's a bit of a perfect storm because people get to these mid to senior female roles quite often when all of these other things are going on in their lives as well. And we don't seem to have connected that for me. So so that's the bit that I'm really interested in, um, as well as learning a bit more from all of your areas of expertise today. Yeah, that's a really great point, Liz, because one of the things that I see as well, I call um, women kind of uh, in this age bracket, the sandwich generation, where they've maybe got grown up children at college or uni still living at home, then they might have elderly parents to care for as well. You know, they're at the peak of their career, you know, in these positions, and then all of a sudden, bam, they're hit with all of these symptoms and, and hit with menopause. Yeah, so we offer them things like gym memberships and, you know, various other things. And it's like, I can't access any of that because I've got to kind of go home to take my kids to after school stuff. or I've got to go home to, to because I've got other responsibilities. You know, you might offer me the opportunity to do, uh, you know, a qualification. But literally, if I'm not sleeping, if I'm stressed, if I feel like I can't prioritise what I've got on my desk day to day and that I'm not really leading very well, I'm not going to show up to that with a curious mindset about, you know, how I can stretch myself further because I haven't got anything left to give. So, Mm. you know, we have to combine these things and look at what we're offering, how are they being accessed, what is really going to support people, what what do they need? Um, And I think some organisations are doing this, are starting to do this. Mm. Um, For me, you know, it's it's linking all this back to strategy. What, what, What is it we really need to deliver and how do we best do that? If I can just add on to that point. Sorry, Lisa, you go ahead. Uh, no, I was just all. I was just going to add on to that point in terms of what what Liz talked about and what Maria talked about in terms of the sandwich generation, and I mean I don't know whether you ladies are seeing this as well, but it is very siloed. But to a certain extent, I've spoken to, with sort of senior women in organisations who feel that although they may be struggling with their own menopause, that the organisation is doing some sort of you know perfunctory. Um, approach to menopause but they still don't feel like they can actually maximize that support for them personally especially when relating it to their role as a senior leader so like Maria said they they are the sandwich generation their organizations may be doing things for uh, you know widespread employees but they themselves don't feel as if they can you know, get the specific support that they need as leaders over and above what is perhaps just policy and procedure, basically. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with what you've just said there, Lisa. And again, just to speak to what Liz was saying and what you've added to there is, you know, we, we think about how we approach leadership development, for example, to get women into these senior roles. Yeah. Um, but are we actually looking at what they need in order to be able to get into those roles and then to be able to sustain those roles. So going back to what you were saying, Liz, about the strategy, but also looking at every individual organisation because they'll all be very different. And as Nicola was saying, it's not a, it's not a priority for them right now, but it will become as, uh, as, as people start to grow within the business. So how do we how do we, you know, because it's one thing raising awareness, isn't it? You know, having Menopause Awareness Month and, and having activities that, you know, try to bring it more into the into the foreground but and I think as well just to just to add to that now we're spending more time working remotely you know you talk about working in silos are there more women out there who are suffering in silence and because of that silent suffering they're not actually um, even speaking about in an open forum at work about their needs 
was going to say that's a really good point. So it's sometimes it's even taking a step back from that. And even before we get to the menopause conversation, it's about creating mm. community and safe spaces for people to speak. But for a lot of organizations, there isn't the psychological safety that people, there are people they can trust to speak openly about this stuff, just general stuff, work stuff, let alone anything related to their health and well-being. So that's a, a real big consideration because not everyone feels the same way or has that level of trust in their team or in their organization. And I've also realized that when sometimes when HR teams have a tendency to be very community-minded, but that's not necessarily reflected in other teams across the business. Yeah, I, I love what you said there, Nicola, around creating safe spaces. And I think um, we know, don't we, that post-pandemic, a sense of belonging uh, and alignment with our values and the organization's values are really important. Um, you know, I've talked on a previous uh, podcast um, on, on this platform around, around peer learning. And I think bringing groups together, creating those safe peer spaces where people can just show up and talk about how it is for them. They can share challenges. They can share what's working for them. You know, there's no question that's a, that's a, that's a kind of silly question to ask. I think that's so incredibly important. And we know that when people really feel that sense of, of belonging you know engagement is higher motivation is higher and you know so there is a business argument to all of this as well as a I mean it's almost like a you know for me it touches on the spiritual and that's really important you know we talk about physical emotional we talk about behavioral impacts of, of menopause we talk about intellectual impacts in terms of brain fog, in terms of forgetfulness, all of those things. But you know, there's a there's a there's a connection thing here, and I think um, that's important for organisations as well as it's important for us in our wider lives that we've got that sense of we have that support network. We can talk about some of these things that um, are deeply personal and will be very different journeys depending on you know what I have in terms of I might have other underlying medical conditions or uh, we know that there are aspects of race and culture that will determine some of our menopause journey and some of the things that we might experience. So, um, yeah, if we could create more safe spaces in, in organisations to talk about menopause, I think that would go a long way, actually, to really supporting people. Yeah, I think to add to your points, um, Nicola and Liz, it's really important that managers are trained and that employees, um, even if you're a leader, that you're able to approach your manager to say, look, you know, really struggling with my sleep or, you know, hot flushes and, you know, be able to have those honest and open conversations so that, you know, reasonable adjustments can be put in place and that you can be supported. And it may just be a simple thing that you you may need to work at home a little bit more or you might need frequent uh, breaks in the day. So it's it's making sure that managers are comfortable and confident um, in their management skills to support the, you know, the employees to support those adjustments in place. Yeah. And, and the BSI standard is great around that, isn't it, Maria? Because it's really yes, helpful yeah. guidance around how do you open up a conversation? What kind of adjustments might be helpful for, for different things so there is there is some guidance out there I'm just quite interested Lisa I wonder whether you might say a little bit around um because I know that you've done some work in really male dominated um organizations and again I think that's a particular challenge when you're trying to get support to open up some of these conversations yeah, I mean, it, it's been very interesting because um, the organisation that I worked with was um, tall and intense, very much a blue collar environment. And actually the driver for this was they had, um, you know, a, a really good well health and well-being policy in place for uh, all employees. But there was a particular sort of quite a senior manager, male manager, whose partner had struggled significantly with um, her perimenopause. And he actually felt it was impacting upon his ability to do his, his job. And he spoke to his HR team. And this sort of snowballed into their sort of ethos of 
bringing your whole self to work and everything that may impact upon their employees outside of work that might actually reduce their productivity, their connection with their employer. So they sort of reflected on how this particular individual manager had struggled and decided that they really wanted to roll this out and raise awareness across all of their male employees. Um, And it was very, very interesting because, you know, there was a lot of, well, why does it really matter to me? Um, But then I think if you can actually sort of relate it to maybe their wives and their partners, and and we went through a number of sort of um, sessions with different departments, which were, you know, all male attendees. But I think actually sort of, you know, being able to talk in a way that these guys could relate to because of what they may be experiencing at home certainly sort of opened their eyes if if not to perhaps what was happening within their workplace because they predominantly worked in a male workforce but certainly what what would be happening for their wives partners girlfriends sisters mums um so it was a really interesting sort of um experience and it it all came about because this particular employer and organization was very keen on every member of their team bringing their whole selves to work which I think is culturally it's not standard you know that's an exceptional culture culture that they've brought into their business and it would be great to see that culture in all businesses but it it often isn't there but it was you know really sort of challenging and enlightening experience at the same time. Lisa, I think you made a really great point there about, um, you know, us having this conversation and opening up the conversation to men, uh, male leaders. But, and I'm just wondering how, you know, how open, I mean, it's a, it's a unique environment that you worked in. And when it's, when it's not so um, unique as that how do we have those conversations and try to build up more male allyship so we talk about leadership don't we 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 do it a lot we talk about sponsoring women we talk about mentoring women and providing opportunities but you know from in my um, opinion I think this is something that needs to be brought into that training Maria you've said you know so many times today in this conversation how important it is that managers have adequate training and education around this and to Lisa's point then, you know, if we combine the education and awareness raising and then speak to people's um, lived experiences, because it is a lived experience for men as well, um, and then build allyship around that. I think sometimes people don't get it unless they've been through it. They don't. Know. But also you don't have to go through an experience to, to be able to empathise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, some of the things that I've done in the workplace is we've implemented Um, menopause champions we've set up um, a support group on ms teams where we're sharing information um, and we have um, uh, menopause cafes so there's opportunities to kind of get together um, and have those conversations so there are really simple you know cost effective things that you can you know put into place to you know support one another yeah and i think there's no there's no one size fits all is there it's like maybe trying some Mm. things and seeing what because because the other thing is we don't often uh, ask what will help either and, and it will be different won't it depending on the context I guess something we've not talked too much about so far that I think is quite compelling in terms of getting those allies on board and that senior sponsorship is around talking about the risk and the cost and we don't talk about that enough for me the hidden cost behind uh, you know women leaving because of menopause and we know from the fig- figures you know, the Women in Workplace uh, Survey 2022, highest number of female leaders now leaving organisations since 2017. And the gap between females and males is also growing. So there's something going on there. And we know what's going on. Women are saying, I'm not going to compromise as much anymore. Can I know what's important to me? So, you know, if we look at those things, uh, I'm sure we'll have a lot to say around the talent, you know, coming in. But, you know, if we think about uh, losing talent, if we think about people not performing at their best, 
So people being, you know, I might not feel I can take a day off, but if I'm not performing at my best, even if it's like 5% below par, 10% below par, what does that, what what is the impact of that on the organisation? So can we find ways of measuring some of that and talking about the business benefit and the cost savings, as well as the ethical and the human and the, you know, because this is the right thing to do. Um, so I think we need to talk about that that bit a little bit more. And then when, when it comes to risk, I think, you know, if you look across organisations, it'd be different again for everybody. But in some areas and in some sectors in particular, you've got huge risk there in terms of, you know, Nicola, you were saying on your HR team, five of you are going through perimenopause, menopause at the moment. You know, you look at a lot of, uh, senior leadership teams or the teams directly below which is where we know all the stuff gets done and all the key relationships are you know and that can be really heavily biased towards senior female uh, sorry uh, around female leaders so if you've got 70 percent of your kind of middle leaders uh, are women who are likely to be experiencing this you've got a huge risk there you know, and I think we need to be talking about some of that. That you know, it's that push and pull, isn't it? You know, here's the cost if you're not doing it, as well as actually look at all the benefits of helping people perform at their best. So that would they would be some of my things. That I think you know, when we talk about allyship, when we talk about championing, yes, let's get those things in place, but also let's look at the business case. The, how you build your brand, how you attract new people in, what people will look at in terms of your culture when they're choosing where to go. Because, you know, we know there's a talent battle out there. I think we could do much more around that. Yeah, I think to add to that list as well, organisations need to be clear on what support is in place as well, um, you know, like to support people. So a lot of organisations have an employee assistance programme in yeah. place, but it's not very well advertised and a lot of people don't use it. And there's also an element of, is this confidential? Will it get back to my employer if I use the um, the helpline? So it's just making sure um, employers signpost people, you know, to the right support and let them know. And again, that's through, you know, that would be in the policy of what's in, in, in place to support them. I'm interested from your perspective, Tanya, because I know you're, you're doing a really good job of facilitating the conversation. But in terms of your work... Because you you must have so much experience around allyship and around creating, uh, you know, the the right cultures, the right kind of environment. So, what would you say in terms of creating allies around this? Thanks, Liz. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and a lot of the work that I do is around creating allyship and, and making people aware of what it means to be an ally and the fact that it's an action and not just something that we label ourselves. And so it's really getting people to think about, well, what can what can I do? Um, but also being mindful that it's about learning first. So for me, it's it's all about learning first. All of what we're talking about is because you can't just decide one day, um, okay, I'm an ally now. Um, sometimes people don't want you to be an ally. Sometimes people don't want you to speak on their behalf. They want to be able to do that for themselves. And I think it's a really fine line, isn't it, that we that we have to walk um, to make sure that we get the balance right. But, you know, and it, I, I'm, I'm going to refer back to what Lisa said again um, about making that connection to lived experience. And whilst it's frustrating that we have to rely on people to have an experience of something before they do anything about it. Um, it does help and it is a way in. You know, most men have a female in their life, um, that whether it's a friend or family member. And so they will, at some point in their lives, know somebody who's going through this. Um, and then it's just taking it out of the personal, isn't it, and applying that knowledge into the workplace and thinking about, well, how does this new knowledge apply to all of the women that I work with? And what can I do to support that? So it's really, you know, I think listening is active listening, really actively listening to people. Um, storytelling, I think, is a really useful tool. You know, hearing stories from those who have lived experience, but again, I'm, I'm keen to just add to that, that we do need to be careful about placing extra burden on those who are going through an experience 
uh, about those being the ones who have to do all of the educating. So I think it's really, you know, again, how are you taking responsibility for your own learning around this for for yourself, but also for those who you're working with and, and those who you're leading and managing. Um, I think it's a it's a, it's a responsibility. Tanya, you make a very good point there. And again, it's everyone's different. Everyone's approach to this and how they how much they want to share is so different. And it's just being cognizant of that. And I think as a starting point, just raising awareness so that it's it's on people's radar. So at the back of their mind, it's there so that when they hear something they think oh this might be aligned or they can signpost someone to appropriate information or guidance that in itself is is a help it doesn't have to be anything big or you know a huge thing and again depending on the size of the company sometimes signposting is enough and and also if you're going to put it onto like this is saying about you want to attract people and talent and show that you're being supportive of people at a particular life stage you've got to do that really well if you're going to use that as a tool for attracting people. And I say that from a talent perspective um, because lots of things are put on websites and actually when you're actually in the job, it doesn't really pan out. And I think just if, if organisations could focus on being open, good listeners, supportive, just the general day-to-day things that we should be for our employees, then that in itself is a good foundation for then providing relevant support at various life stages and things that mm. people experience. Yeah. Nicola, I'd be really interested from a HR perspective just to hear um, how you would like measure the impact within an organisation. So would you do that through surveys, you know, through focus groups? Yeah, we kind of, uh, for other issues that we've looked at, like I've been running a, we have, like you say, there are tools that we have that people aren't necessarily aware of. So you might hear about it at, induction or onboarding and then you've forgotten about it because you get into the melee of learning your new job and getting integration in your team and we've got things like headspace and online videos for yoga and the eap you know line and website and what we found is with mindfulness we've well i've run a four-week um course encouraging people to use the headspace app And then I've been having weekly check-ins with them for the last four weeks, which has been quite interesting. So out of a population of 540, 40, 43 people signed up. And I would say there was a rolling four to six people who'd come on the check-ins each week. So again, it's like, as long as you're sharing that information and I have a Slack group through which I share information or say the next, you know, check-ins coming up, join if you're free. And again, like you say about confidentiality, I say to them, those calls are not recorded. So you come, you speak in confidence, or you speak directly to me if you want to. And again, it's about reassuring people and building a level of trust that you're there to support them. And I think that's really important just as an overall bedrock of everything else that we're trying to do and support. Yeah, that's a really great um, point, Nicola, about some of the things that you've got in place. Because when we talk about menopause, we just think, oh, HRT. But there are lots of natural things that we can do, not only to support somebody going through menopause, but for your well-being as well. So, you know, doing mindfulness, you know, that can help with, you know, hot flushes, the breathing exercises, yoga, weight bearing exercises to strengthen your bones. So, again, it's just educating people on all the natural things that we can do, you know, to support somebody going, you know, through the menopause and ease ease those symptoms. Absolutely. There are lots of lifestyle um, interventions you can use, very small things that can help mitigate or support you through through those occasions. Mm. I think Lisa was going to add something to that. No, well, I was going to make a point back to uh, Tanya's original comments about lived experiences. And one of the things that, that I've seen um, and experienced is I think you know, if you have um, a whole wide age group getting involved in the awareness, these lived experiences are coming not just for women sort of in their 40s who are perimenopausal, but, you know, I've certainly seen a lot of engagement from younger women who maybe suffer with endometriosis or who've gone through a surgical or medical menopause. 
um, who may not have the option of HRT, as Maria referred to, and who may be looking for other sort of um, options and solutions to help them whilst they're struggling with this. But I think it's quite interesting because it's, you know, certainly from, from what I've seen, if you can get younger generations to talk about their experiences with endometriosis, which people might not necessarily associate them as being menopausal women, you, you seem to get much more of a buy-in from the younger generations, or you seem to get much more of an uh, acknowledgement from sort of men who may be in the sessions who say, well, my partner's struggling with that, or my fiancé is really struggle with that. So I, I think in terms of those lived experiences, if we can get all, you know, if we if there's a willingness, and, and again, I think there's some generational differences here, because certainly, you know, as a sort of... Um, you know, your baby boomers may not necessarily be comfortable to about talking about their menopause experience, but you're certainly seeing women sort of in their 20s, the millennials, the Gen Z, who are much more open and much more willing to share their lived experiences. And that may be POI, it may be endometriosis, it may be any kind of hormonal struggle that they're facing that brings on menopause-like symptoms. I think, yeah, absolutely. And it is interesting, isn't it, how... I mean, it's not surprising how we've got the younger generations um, who are more willing to open up. I just think, you know, it's part of the culture that we live in. We're a much more open um, culture. There are more options, aren't there, for us to be open um, about these things now than there have been in the past. But it seems like a really missed opportunity for us not to hear from the voices of those who are perhaps postmenopausal as well and you know to, to to hear about what's on the other side because you know it doesn't sound too much fun does it when you're a young person listening to people who are perimenopausal and menopausal um so it'd be quite nice to have some um words of reassurance i think as well from from those who have been through the experience and then can report back i'm really supportive of the sort of communication and the awareness that we've had recently on the TV and and the like mm. but what what we don't tend to hear is what a positive experience it can be yeah in spite of that yeah. and when you come out the other side it's um it's a, a, another life stage and there's so much to look forward to and we don't get a, a lot about that it's been quite interesting for me because for myself and a lot of my friends who are nutritional therapists a lot of us have been working in full-time permanent jobs and have then studied in our spare time over a number of years to do this and they're all going through that similar sort of life stage and it's really quite interesting how there are so many opportunities to take stock um make changes to pivot to think to see there are other opportunities it's not all a negative thing sometimes the the less savory side of menopause also means that that it triggers other other ways of thinking and a new way of doing things and that that can trigger really positive conversations but we don't hear a lot of those which is a shame really absolutely yeah it's it's a good point Nicola and I think the language that we use as well is is, is really important so when I talk um, about menopause I always say it's a natural life transition into your second you know kind of adulthood um, and really stress the point of that at the end of workshops you know that we're in the most liberating sort of period in your life where your children may have grown up, um, you've got, you're at the peak of your career. Um, we see lots of people getting divorced actually at this time as well because they reevaluate the lives. Um, but yeah, I see it as a really liberating, you know, period in, in your life for sure. Yeah, I, I really like what you said there, Maria. And I think uh, you mentioned career. I think, uh, you know, Quite often, I see women really reevaluating their career at this stage as well and kind of getting out of their swim lane. So, wanting to, you know, maybe having invested very heavily on um, building up technical competence in one area, but kind of going, I don't want to do this for the next 15 years. I'm not really knowing what the transferable skills are, what the strengths are. So, you know, in terms of having a coaching relationship with people, that comes up an awful lot. Or or not wanting to anymore kind of climb up the organisational hierarchy, but maybe wanting to go across and do something significantly different, but not being maybe seen as a natural to kind of move in that, in that area. And um, 
I, th- I think, again, it's a huge missed opportunity because think of the wisdom that we have in those individuals that have gone through menopause. And if we could, as organisations, could really help people to distill that wisdom and to share that with others, with other women, but also, you know, all of the other things that they see about how the organisation is or isn't working. You know, we just don't, we don't value that feminine wisdom, do we? I can see Nicola laughing. Um, you know, and... Um, so, so I think, again, with any intervention and in terms of how organisations can support helping people, not just to, to think about career at that stage. I think in Asia, they talk about it being a second spring in your, in your life. And what a lovely way of thinking about it versus how we think about it in the UK. Like you say, a new beginning, uh, uh, you know, we're going through this mm. very natural transition where... We will, we will have some losses and we'll have to grieve those losses. But there are also other things opening up to us and our life is changing in lots of positive ways as well. I think employers also have to be more creative and, like you say, about moving people moving laterally and looking at where their skills can be mapped to other roles or doing other things. I, th- I don't think people really take that time, especially when you have, like you say, when your children have gone to college, university or made their own lives and you've got time on your hands. That is the time. And also I was thinking most of the 50 to 60 year olds that I know now look nothing like our parents' generation of 50 and 60 year olds. I mean, my friends are in their 60s. Mm. They're doing John O'Groats on Land's End bike rides. You see them lifting weights. You know, they're fit. They're living their lives. They're living really exciting lives. And it's not people need to start to think of all the things they can do it's not just the stuff you did when you were a teenager or in your gap year there's still time to do all that stuff exactly one, one of the things I did when I turned 50 is I made um, a 50 at 50 list of all the things I want to do in, in my 50s um, but coming on to your point Nicola as well I just think we are more educated now into you know in how to look after ourselves mentally emotionally and physically so we are in good shape and we need to be as well because we're going to be living a lot longer we might be working for a lot longer as well so um you know it's a very exciting time and um but again it's that you know that education in how we can invest ourselves you know invest in ourselves and our well-being and Liz made a good point about you have all this knowledge that you've learned you want to share but I also think there's a reverse thing I think sometimes I look to younger people in our organization what can I learn from them it's like keeping up with technology and what's changing and what can I learn so I'm really into chat GPT and some of my younger colleagues aren't. Mm. And, they, and it's like, I, th- I keep saying to them, you need to get on this because this is going to be the core of how we how we operate in every aspect of our lives. And it's, I suppose different people have different perspectives, irrespective of their age. And sometimes we need to bring people along with us and, and tell them it's not all doom and gloom. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. But I do, I do see some organisations having an outdated um perspective when people reach a certain age about what they might want to do around so I so I do again sometimes when I'm coaching individuals it's because they feel they're being overlooked it's because if they feel that people are, are making all sorts of assumptions around what they may or may want to do or what they're capable of or what they can learn we all know the brain is amazing it's amazingly plastic we can learn till the end of our to the end of our days we can we can explore like you said Nicola you know when we have a bit more time perhaps when you know we have less family responsibilities we can discover a whole new side of creativity that we never had chance to even even know about um so I, I think that whole message around you know menopause isn't the end menopause is the beginning of the next uh, phase and the next phase for some women might look really really different to what the previous one looked looked like, and that's and that's absolutely fine, and it might look more more of the same, but you know you have options and choices um, in there as well as having to um, perhaps navigate some symptoms that you weren't that you weren't having before. Yeah, Liz, you've made a really great point there. I've been um, working with organisations on um, managing a multi-generational workforce because we've now got five generations in the workplace. And one of the things that I've found is people who are over 50 don't always have um, access to training and a clear kind of career pathway because it's seen as, well, they may be coming up for retirement 
Um, so they're often overlooked. So I think organisations need to make sure that for the over 50s, that they've still got access to, you know, training, you know, and opportunities. Um, and, and as you say, they may want to go off in another direction, um, you know, etc. I think, Maria, what you said there, it's it's all of this is resonating with me um, on coming across the work of Aviva Wittenberg-Cox. I don't know if anybody's aware of her work, but she wrote a fantastic series of books that look at the she, – she, she does a lot of work around generational um, inclusion – gender inclusion sorry and inclusion for women um but one book that she looks at is the is the four phases of uh women's careers and you know as liz has said and as nicola said as well and yourself maria we've 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 recognized that we're living much longer lives and we're healthier we're fitter and we're doing things and it's a real just to go back to what you were saying liz it's a real missed opportunity isn't it to not recognize that you know it's not until we're 60 or 65 anymore that we could be adding value until we're 80 or 85. And so helping us through this transition um, as women is is really going to help us feel like we've got that sense of belonging. It builds that trust and loyalty. And then fewer people are probably going to be thinking, as is happening now, of leaving the workforce, setting up their own consultancies and coaching businesses because that works for them and they can be more flexible around how they work. Um, if there's that sense of, of belonging and inclusion at work, you might have those people with, as you say, such a wealth of information and knowledge that can be passed on through mentoring. And I even think, you know, this idea um, that people are speaking about quite a lot now, and I'm using it as well, is is reverse mentoring. So pairing people up with people who you wouldn't ordinarily come into contact with because that's not part of your working day um, to learn about someone else's experience and build empathy around that as well. And then you know, I think that leads to the allyship that Lisa and I were speaking about a little bit earlier. Yeah, I totally agree, Tanya. I've, um, I've seen this mentoring work really well. Yeah. Sorry, Lisa, did you want to jump in there as well? Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, Tanya, in terms of, I think, it, you know, multi-generational workforces are, are really, really great, but you actually need senior managers and leaders who are going to engage with those younger generations for them to actually get the, you know, the benefit and the advantage of that viewpoint. And, you know, do enough organisations actually have their senior leaders and their managers um, actually engage with those younger generations? That would be the the question I would, would want to ask, very much because I had a very, you know, multi-generational team and... I think possibly the people that will engage with those younger generations are, you know, maybe perhaps not realizing the benefits that they can bring to them as leaders, as, you know, women going on through the, the workforce and what have you. Do you think, Lisa, that, you know, when we speak about this and we're trying to kind of nudge people, aren't we, towards making these choices for themselves? Um, because nobody wants to be told, you know, you have to sit down with this person and you have to learn from them, hopefully change your perspective and mind about all kinds of things. But what if, you know, in in some instances, I've seen it work where um, this idea of inclusion and is is linked to performance. Okay, so it's it's what have you done this year to move this forward? for yourself, for the organisation, for your teams. And I think when we start to see it being measured in that way, there's more of an emphasis on people are more willing to engage with it because it's something that shows yeah. up. It's something that can actually be measured. Now, it might seem like that's a, a route that we don't want to take because, again, it's it's kind of forcing people into, but I'd like to think of it more as a nudge until it becomes more mainstream until it becomes more of a common practice we have to keep nudging people um towards the direction that we want them to to move in i don't know what your thoughts are on that lisa and whether you've had similar experiences yeah i think i think you're right but i think it's it for me it's really sad that we have to nudge people to do something that perhaps is second nature to some of us and not others because you know i i think that if you are in a leadership position, you should actually embrace talking to everybody within your team, irrespective of their age, irrespective of their role, irrespective of their viewpoint, because 
how can you effectively manage and support you know multi generations uh, different nationalities if you're actually you know not prepared to engage with them on a on a regular basis and i just think it's a real shame mm-hmm. that we have to nudge people into allyship for this or allyship for that you know in an ideal world it would it would come naturally to people wouldn't it but at least this is this is it. We're dealing, dealing with humans. Yeah, it doesn't come naturally to people. Yeah, we're working on we're working from a position of privilege, and we're working from a position of knowledge. True, and we're also we don't know other people's frame of reference. Mm. So, uh, th- our starting points are all very different, and so I find the nudge technique is really good because you always think, even if you make the tiniest, I whenever I go to an organisation, I always say, if I've made two percent difference, I've made a difference. You're not expecting a hundred percent change it's that two percent and building and building and building and it opens people's eyes so it it might be something as simple as i've been reading a book about i don't know habit changing and then i share that in my people team meeting and then they share it with their managers when they're talking to their colleagues and it's it's a little trickle effect that no matter you know whatever you've got and you share and you can do the same with with menopause with stress with you know other issues that we want to raise and 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 um bring into the mainstream i don't disagree with you nicola i think the nudge tech you know the, the nudge t- tactic and the nudge technique is the way that we have to go i just think it's it's a it's a, a real for you for you as an individual if you if you aren't you know open to that anyway and it's the it's the only tactic that we have around as you say menopause and everything else but i just think it's a it, it's a shame if you as a leader have to be nudged in that direction but we also have to we also have to recognise that lo- there are lots of accidental managers. True. And so you know, not everybody's had the benefit of being um, exposed to you know executive training, leadership training, even training to be a manager or a team leader, supervisors. So everybody really is at a very different starting point. And sometimes you know it's based on technical ability, isn't it? So you can do the job really well, but your people skills are not there yet. Um, and unless you've got somebody guiding you, and if it, and and I think particularly in smaller organisations as well, there's a lot of that happening, um, and so people haven't had the necessary exposure to learning experiences that will help them develop those skills. And I think so. On the one hand, Lisa, I agree. It's sad that we don't have that, but you know we're living in a world where not everybody's had access to 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 that training yet. Hopefully, and um, hopefully more and more will start coming through. That's, that's helping them to develop those skills. I think I think that's really true, Tanya. And I think I would go further to say probably the majority of people haven't had the training they need before they get put in the manager post. It t- tends to happen after if it happens at all. I guess what I like from what you're both talking about, Nicola and Lisa, is, you know, we sometimes need to shine the light on menopause, don't we? And we sometimes need to be talking about menopause specifically. But actually, a lot of these things... You know, if we think of it, step back and think of it systemically, you know, there's a lot we can draw together here. So creating cultures where we have psychological safety, creating cultures where we have trust, focusing on our leaders in organisations, not just in having a great set of values on the wall, but how are our leaders behaving? How are our leaders working with their teams how are they collaborating with other teams you know I could go on and on and on here I'm nothing but you know so it is about menopause and it is about um to draw on what you said earlier Tanya I love your uh, talking about storytelling I think that's so powerful and we have to get those lived experiences out there and we have to have some menopause specific learning development workshops uh, guidance you know EAP support all of that but it's, it's part of that bigger thing, isn't it? How do we want to be as an organisation? What is it like to work with us? What kind of employee brand, um, employer brand do, do we want? Why would people want to come and work for us? What What's our promise to them? And where do we want to take this organisation? What kind of differentiates us? So I think, I think there are some things there around, yes, nudge, uh, but I don't think we should have something on our performance management that's a kind of an inclusion piece to do a menopause piece to do a well-being piece to do you know we yeah. should actually be thinking much more integrated about 
how should we behave in? How should we be leading? How should we, we be working in teams? How are we with our stakeholders and, and all of those things? Because actually, if we got if we got that right, then the, this would be happening naturally, wouldn't it? Because we would be showing up with our whole selves and we would be able to be really honest about, you know, I'm struggling with this right now because although this is part of my job, I, I happen to have a menopause symptom right now, which means you will tell me your name one minute and then I will immediately forget it. It's not that I'm not listening and it's not that I'm not being dis- that I'm being disrespectful, but I cannot remember anyone's name at the moment. And, you know, I could be really honest about that um, if it's in the right environment. I agree, Liz. And I think, you know, to, to, to just go back to that performance management piece. Yeah, I agree. It shouldn't be isolated metrics for each individual cause or characteristic, whatever it is that we're talking about, but a, a, an inclusion as a whole piece. So we're speaking to the values, the cultures, the behaviours that we want to see in the business. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really important that it's driven from the top as well, from yeah, the leaders. It's, it's really, it's, it's just, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I think we've got to, you know, we do, as I say, we're dealing with it as a topic. But actually, when we zoom out and look at it, we're really talking about how, uh, you know, not just how organisations behave but culture society you know it gets really big doesn't it it does mm-hmm. it does yes it's demonstrating those positive and the right behaviors isn't it in the workplace for sure absolutely yeah because it because it doesn't you can you can talk about it but if they're not really role modeling it, it we're not going to get very far i also think there's a way for it to come the other way so we have employer groups for various section intersectionalities and and that also exerts pressure in a really good way that says to the mm. employer, mm, you need to be thinking about this. Why haven't we done this? Or what should we be doing about this? Or what can you tell me about this? That's really good too. Yeah, both ways, definitely. Both ways. Yeah, yeah. And, to, and it, you know, that's 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 how we know change works, isn't it? You know, we it's not just top down. We absolutely have to uh, involve people at every level. And again, that's because people may be experiencing things very different in different roles. Um, so that's really important too. So where do we want to go now? <laughs> is there anything we've not talked about that we think is really helpful to share with people? Anything that we think we've not covered? I mean, I was interested because Lisa, you mentioned, um, you know, we're speaking about this from 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 a, from a woman's point of view, and perhaps looking at um, have we touched upon LGBTQ? Have we touched upon women who are perhaps in the trans community who may not be? Um, included in the conversation uh i think you i think you touched on that when we first introduced ourselves yeah i did touch on it and it's something that um as a gay woman i actually have sort of my own lived experience of that in terms of you know being part of the lgbt community when it comes to menopause and media and research a lot of it is done on you know heterosexual women so there is an element of sort of being outside of the mainstream areas of discussion um for the lgbt community because if you if you go to talk to a gp there's an automatic assumption that you know you are you are straight and if that's for a gay woman then i can imagine for a trans individual non-binary it's even you know, potentially even even more tricky in terms of the sort of lack of knowledge that GPs have generally. And then you sort of extrapolate that out when it comes to uh, all of the sort of hormonal stuff for, for, for trans individuals. So I think to talk to your point, Tanya, yeah, it is, you know, if you look outside of what I call the mainstream media portrayal of your menopausal woman, whether it's uh, non-Caucasians, whether it's LGBT, there seems to be a lot of, you know, pigeonholing, I think, and, and sort of assumptions made. I, you're absolutely right. And I think this goes back to, Liz, what you and I were just talking about there, you know, when it's bringing it more into less looking at individual characteristics and more looking at culture as a whole, I feel is the way forward because Lisa, like you say, people are put into boxes and then 
it it can it can trigger this well if we do this for that group then why is this group not getting that and it kind of starts almost infighting rather than let's look at the whole and let's look at inclusion for all and but really look at inclusion for all which is why it's so important to have you know diversity of perspective so you've got people from all backgrounds in the room where decisions are being made about things so that you've got that different perspective otherwise how are you going to become aware of it yeah, and and again, just the whole understanding why that is so important and how damaging it is in teams, in organisations, mm-hmm. when you don't have that um, that kind of broadness of, of perspective. What happens? The things you miss, the mm. the creativity that is lost there. You know that that whole thing around. Um, so one of the things that I work with a lot is strength scope, and I'm a real big believer in people understanding their strengths, understanding what they bring uh, to situations, but also understanding the things that 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 kind of don't give them as much energy. So when we look at strengths, mm. we look at what energizes you, and that gives you permission to not be good at some things and to say, you know what, I'm going to bring Tanya in to that this working group because I know she'll look at it from this perspective, which I don't have or I don't have that experience. And I'm going to bring, you know, Nicola in because I know, you know, she'll, she's, she's like really big picture. So that's a really great thing to add, you know, and, and Lisa's great at um, looking at people from different countries or, you know, whatever it may be, that, that whole... And it becomes less mm-hmm. kind of threatening because uh, it's actually about, you know, I know what I bring and I know where I'm really energised when I'm thinking and working. And if I can help other people to be in that space, who else do I need to bring around me then in order to make this a real wider discussion? Um, so, but I, but I think we tend to quite often fall into the trap of thinking of, at a, in a bit of a deficit model, like I've got to know everything you know, I'm a leader, so I need to have the answers to the questions and I can't possibly admit that I'm not very good at anything. Um, so again, again, for me, it kind of comes back to a bit of a culture, trust, psychological safety piece. But I absolutely agree with what you're saying there around, you know, if we can, if we can create that environment where we're looking at that inclusion in the broadest sense, you know, it doesn't, not not kind of segmenting it, but we're looking at, how do we make sure that everybody feels they have a voice here and mm. and are valued and have yeah. some value to, to, to offer? Definitely. But I think with that, I think it's important for us still when we're looking at data to disaggregate the data so we know what how we're improving things, what, what progress has been made. Um, definitely. But yeah, definitely the way to the way to create it is with all. Um, but break it down when we're when we're looking at seeing what progress we've made because that equity piece is really important as well, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. So, should we do a quick run round of um, kind of key takeaways then? Because it's been such a wide ranging conversation, hasn't it? Um, who wants to go first before I put someone on? Yeah, Liz, I'll, I'll kick off. I think I think my key takeaway is to make sure organisations have got a proper strategy in place for menopause. And my key takeaway is train your managers. Shall I go next? So my key takeaway would be um, don't be afraid to start small. Do something. Start small and build from there and meet people where they're at. Talk to your people and start small. Yeah, I think, you know, my, my biggest takeaway from all of this is that it's, it is a journey and you are going to make mistakes. And I think to be able to be vulnerable enough to accept that those mistakes will be made and that we don't have all the answers, um, that for me is, is where the learning happens as well. Oh, brilliant. Love that, Tanya. Lisa, what are your key takeaways? Oh, gosh. Um, such a lot that we've gone through. I mean, things... You know, like like Nicola said, starting small, like Tanya's referenced in terms of um, diversity, nudge tactics. Um, you know, we we I guess we can't eat the whole elephant in one go, and maybe there are quick wins we can make to ensure that you know, particularly menopause, it's looked at from a more holistic view, and it's tied in really with not just supporting women who may be going through it, but younger women, also direct support and and investing in our female leaders who may be going through and struggling with it at the same time as sort of having a a more senior position. 
Brilliant. Great, great key takeaways. I agree with all of them. So I'll say something different just to give our audience um, uh, a bit of variety. So I guess my thing would be zoning out a little bit and thinking about this systemically. So not just thinking too much in a siloed way around just menopause. Look at it more broadly. Look at it in terms of your leadership. Look at it in terms of your culture. Look at it in terms of how do you want to be seen as an organisation? How do you want to really perform at your best? So I guess that would be my thing that it's, you know, we have to look at the at the micro, but we have to kind of really zoom out and look at the, the, the macro aspects of it as well. We've never had five guests recording at the same time and it presented some unusual challenges, not least when we had connection issues. We really do hope you're able to listen to the podcast without any issues and enjoy the enlightening and informed conversation. It took an hour, but actually we think it's an hour really well spent. We are so grateful to Tanya, Maria, Nicola, Liz and Lisa for their unbelievable contributions. You can, as always, find their details in the show notes, along with all their links and contact information. And you'll also find links to some of the things they discussed and other topics of interest. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode of Women Talking About Learning, and next time it's the expectation one. What do you think that one's about? As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.